Welcome to the Watts of Change podcast. I'm your host, Jen Watts, and we are live from Indianapolis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Watts of Change podcast, episode 12. Um, very excited that we're on our 12th episode. Um, if you are like me and you are following all the Spotify raps that have come out at the end of the year, um, I was able to get the statistics around Watts of Change podcast. So we, we did pretty well, actually, um, for only being in existence for about seven months and launching just 12 episodes. Um, this podcast was in the top 10% uh, shared podcast globally. Um, so I can't thank the listeners enough for sharing um, my podcast and, and Watts of Change podcast to your networks. Um, of course, I'm going to ask that you continue to do that. Um, and really, I can't thank you enough for your support. Um, I think some of the guests that have been on the show already are extremely talented, um, are coming forward with brilliant ideas. And really, I'm just lucky to have these individuals in my network um, to call upon to solve any real problem that that comes across my desk in my company. But um, also would love to share the talents of my network for others who are running organizations or businesses that are interested in thinking about strategic change, um, whatever that means, whether that's at the organizational level, whether that's, um, you know, your mission, your vision, how do you fundraise better? How do you build a better strategic communications campaign around change and around social impact? Um, I am happy to, to help and, and think issues through. So just reach out. Um, you know, my website is Watts, uh, Watts and you can set up a consultation there and myself or someone will get back to you to talk through your needs. So I can't thank everyone enough again for listening and supporting, and hopefully I can return the favor for you as well. Today's episode is going to be a follow-on from um, my setting the tone for a conversation about Generation Z um, going from the midterms, midterm elections in 2022 to the presidential in 2024. Um, and, you know, a lot of articles sort of reared their heads right after the election about how influential this generation, this new generation of voters, Generation Z, was um, to making uh, the sort of blue wave um, happen across our country and frankly, stop the red wave. Um, and there's more articles coming out that are also saying, you know, Gen Z actually had a low, had a low turnout. Um, but the reality is we don't, we don't really know, we don't have all the numbers. And it's very hard to capture this data and understand what voter turnout was until all the data is processed. And it's also very hard to understand age groupings, and really collect these trends. You know, a lot of that has to go because there's different types of data policies within states across the country. So every secretary of the state across the country is in charge of setting laws, setting rules around how much data can be collected. The federal, um, the federal judicial courts are also involved in some of those decisions to protect voter um, information, which rightly so given you know, the attack on our democracy that we've seen over the course of, of 10 years. So protecting this data is critical for our democracy and for our security. Um, but there are a lot of really smart think tanks and data analysts right now trying to understand how influential the Gen Z voting sect was for, for the midterms 
Um, and how influential will these new leaders be going into the presidential? You know, I have said over and over again that I believe that the environment is completely ripe for these, these voters to actually own the platform for the 2024 presidential election and bring forward the issues they care about most. Um, and, you know, those issues, as I mentioned in the last episode, are the economy and entrepreneurship. Um, climate change is very critical for this generation. Um, voting rights, voter protection is extremely important for this generation. Um, gun control, uh, gun violence. We're dealing with a, a generation who has been doing gun drills since they were in elementary school. They have gone through an active shooter drill at their schools, you know, since they were possibly in kindergarten, first grade, preschool. Um, they understand that gun violence is real and that a you know, situation, an unfortunate situation um, of an active shooter coming into their school building could happen. This generation sees that and they want to fight it. Um, you know, they also are, are very concerned about their health care. Um, you know, they, they frankly don't have many options or limited options when they get off their parents' plans. And once again, it's a generation that's been told if they're going to go to college and they're going to get a college degree and they're going to get student loans, that they're guaranteed some sort of job that's going to give them benefits and security. But that is simply not the truth. And this generation knows it, understands it, and is starting to embrace the concept of starting their own businesses and side hustles. Um, and so, and also, sorry, the number one issue that I've been shocked about, frankly, learning over the course of these few weeks starting this series is that Generation Z cares deeply about mental health. They have been exposed and they've been on social media, frankly, since they've been in kindergarten in some cases, and they have, are very intimate with social media and the influences of social media, both bad and good. You know, one of my guests you'll hear from, Nick Roberts, who's actually running for office as a Generation Z candidate, um, talks intimately about mental health and how it's important to him and his candidacy why it's important to his generation and how he has, you know, seen a lot of his friends and himself and peer groups be highly influenced by social media pressure. Um, so mental health is extremely important to this generation. They've lived through a pandemic. They are, they are the victims of um, rapid gun violence that's happening across our country right now. Um, they are in an economy that is not guaranteed. And the so social, societal, and cultural pressures that are upon them to, you know, live, succeed, and thrive in this achievement culture that we set up for them. You know, are we setting them up for success? And I think this generation has the tools to question if we're setting them up for success and hold politicians and teachers and school leaders, policymakers, and their parents accountable to make sure that they're living their healthiest lives. So this has been such a great project for me to work on. I'm clearly a youth advocate. I have a huge background in it in education and advocacy work. I'm very passionate about protecting our youth and providing paths for them to be successful, whatever those paths look like. So I'm going to jump right in to my interviews with our guests. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you listen um, with an open heart and an open mind as this generation and also experts in this generation set the stage for what we're about to see going into the presidential election um, and for future Gen Z candidates to run for office. So my first guest I'd like to bring on is Quasi Chapin. Quasi is a wonderful friend. We have known each other for over a decade. Um, we worked together on 
um, you know, numerous issue-based campaigns um, together. He's been one of my biggest organizing uh, coaches, um, peers, and friends to hold me accountable on how to be a better ally in my work as a community organizer. Um, Kwesi was influential in the uh, Obama campaign. He focused on get-out-the-vote efforts in the primary in South Carolina. He was also influential in Ohio in the general election, bringing home victories for um, President Barack Obama. Um, he has worked on, he worked with a new organizing institute in Washington, D.C., um, which is where we met. And he recently was the senior um, political, national political director for the organization Color of Change. Um, he has started his own consultancy business as of late um, and is taking on some incredible projects around reparations um, and advocacy around reparations across the country. Um, so let's listen to Kwesi and his advice on how we mobilize Gen Z for future elections. So welcome to the Lots of Change podcast, everyone. I'm extremely excited about my next guest, Kwesi Chapin. Um, me and Kwesi have been friends for, I don't know, how many years now? <laughs> Oof, it's some years, at least 10 <laughs> 10 years, over 10 years, I feel like. Um, Kwesi has been an incredible friend, but also coach and mentor to me. Um, and truly, we organized next to each other when we were working for the New Organizing Institute in Washington, D.C. when it existed, um, which is an organization dedicated to training activists across the world on how to organize using new organizing tactics, but also how to use digital media and data-driven campaigns to influence the way that they organize. Um, and so, Kwesi, how long have you been a community organizer and doing Ooh. this work? Wow, that's a good question. So I didn't know I was doing community organizing, but um, but I will say back in high school, I was doing, had an internship uh, at the uh, program called Bringing the Lessons Home at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, where yes. I did um, tours um, of my peers throughout the um, in D.C. area of, of public school students uh, who come in and learn Holocaust history. But in, in between those tours, like, we would go into the community and actually, like, do outreach. And it was literally bringing the lessons home. So it was um, and in those tours, like, we would talk about this is when I first learned story. Like, I was learning survivor stories, but also, like, how did this, this Jewish history relate to what we see in America? Like, I would, this is a... Um, this sort of the nerd I am, history nerd, like I would be hitting up, I would see Nuremberg signs of, of uh, no Jews allowed. I'm like, huh, where in America have we seen this before, right? And so mm. that's sort of like, I guess, wouldn't call that reorganizing per se, but I would probably be 2006 on the Martin O'Malley campaign. Wow. <laughs> <Forget> the- <laughs> Love it. <laughs> but then I didn't... Uh, I didn't stick too long on that one. That was maybe a day. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Obama campaign come around 2007 in South Carolina. And that's where, like, I really went to a Camp Obama and, like, oh, this is community organizing. Oh, okay. And even then, it's political organizing adopted by community organizing. That's a Mm. long story. But so it's 2007. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's – and, I mean, I remember – the South Carolina campaign just being absolutely groundbreaking mm-hmm. and historic and mobilizing black voters, mobilizing young voters, rural voters, 
you know, when you were in South Carolina, so, you know, clearly I'm running a series on Gen Z Uh and the youth vote. And we've had a lot of conversations just over the course of the past year on what it takes to actually keep young people engaged and how intense and how consistent you have to be um, when you're organizing young people and you have to invest in it. You have to build the ground campaign. You have to really build the infrastructure and leadership, you know, from your South Carolina experience. Also, I know you were really a significant player in Ohio as well on the general election for Mm -hmm. Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know you're based in Cleveland, right? No, based on- Where were you based? Maryland. What? Yeah. Wait, what do you mean in Ohio? In Ohio? Were you in Ohio, though? No, I'm not in Ohio. No, were you in Ohio? Were you in Ohio? Yes, I was in Ohio. Yes, I, okay. I was twice. That's why I was like, yes. Okay, when you were in Ohio, you were organizing around, I, I know, youth vote as well at some level and getting them out to vote. What would you consider... If I, you know, going into the 2024 election, what would be one of those critical components to keeping young people engaged and organizing them so that they'll come out and vote um, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a productive way? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, quite frankly, it, it depends on what we're doing next year. Um, if you want to impact 2024, how are you talking and engaging with constituencies in 2023? Are you dismissing them and maybe only going after a certain audience because you feel like they're the saving grace? <laughs> um, and how and how are you talking to young folks? How are you talking to black folks? Right? It's like you ready? It's no brainer what the winning coalition was for the Obama campaign, and quite frankly, for Biden's campaign. So, um, <clears throat> if uh, President Biden wants to get reelected again, um, he's going to have to pay attention to young folks, and and that's. Quite frankly, um, having policies that people, that young folks will actually win on and like be able to be proud on. I know the student loan stuff uh, was definitely one good shot at that um, happening, but shout out to the Supreme Court for making that very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Right. Uh, yes. and so, quite frankly, so Biden's going to have to come with something else, right, that will give. Um, in particular around the economy, right? Um, we just can't ignore this inflation stuff. And so what, however he's going to address that, um, is going to have to make sure that young people will be, in, be able to benefit from that and be able to actually see that. So not just the seniors, the young folks who are, who are our future. Um, and young folks have said for a long time what they care about, like climate change, economy, and risk of justice. So like, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, yes. Address those issues, and then that will help. So that's one. Like get that out of the way. Get some get, get some good policy through. We know that uh, Congress is going to be split, um, so we're looking to President Biden to make some executive orders. And then two, how are you engaging folks? So um, organizations who are focused on youth will hopefully be funded. Uh, to do that youth engagement work, right? You can't just show up a month or two months before the election with a concert 
and thinking that with Taylor Swift or whoever, thinking that, all right, this will get the young people to come out to vote. No. (laughs) They will show up to a concert and that's it. (laughs) Um, We have seen this before in 2020 when we try to engage uh, youth votes um, with the Hillary Clinton campaign, right? If you're not doing consistent engagement um, and just like many other institutions, particularly the youth, they recognize real. And so what they know is not authentic when you just show up two months before on their campus, asking them to register, then then to go vote. That's a big ask, and especially not explain the why and also why it's important. So, and what their role is and how they will actually be benefited from them. So like, until you're looking at... Um, just engaging constituencies as full human beings and not just a number. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be repeating the same mistakes and we'll probably see a, a dip. I'm waiting to hopefully see the numbers from the from this midterms. Like what you see right, right now in the press, there's only a couple of states who actually release their voter data. Mm-hmm. So a lot of press is making a lot of guessing games about right. what happened and what and what's not. There's only a couple of states that, that actually released. And so in the cu- next couple of months, when folks really get to dig into that data, like who actually came out and who, and who didn't, and start asking the why question in 2023 and start making solutions towards that, um, then we'll be able, hopefully be able to get some W's in 2024. Yes, yes. And and I love that you raise the concept of authenticity um, when you engage young people. Um, and I think that that's so that is that is such a generational misunderstanding, I think, right now that's going on where you have sort of like the senior leaders in, in both parties, frankly, who have done business a certain way, or they are done taking bets on young people, or they're done taking bets on certain states because they've quote unquote seen it all. And what's what I think comes off is this sort of sense of elitism, and that is exact the exact way to get young people to not care and not vote and not listen to you. Mm-hmm. And what's frustrating is when you hear senior leaders or the boomers or older generation, you know, call younger folks entitled or you know whatever the lazy, whatever the case is. That's for me. That's you know and. and many others. That's that's not my thesis here around this new generation of young voters. They're smarter than any generation we've seen. Mm-hmm. They're digital natives. They've grown up with the world at their fingertips. They are taking in information rapidly day to day. And for this generation, they will call you out if they do not think you're authentic. Mm. Like what, like, like how do we, how do we build authentic structures, authentic campaigns? Because I know you've done a lot of work around this and it's something you've coached me on. <laughs> so, you know, like how do we even begin being authentic for young people? Mm. I mean, that's a good question. So it's just like with any other person or, or human being, right? And so one, um, who's the messenger um, and also, what are you bringing? <laughs> right? So if it's an elected official, if, it's, if you're a current elected official, you should be, one, engaging your constituency now, not just during um, election day. Because I'm a big, firm believer this is a democracy. The people hold you accountable, right? And so it's young folks will hold you accountable. It's Black folks who your constituency are supposed to hold you accountable so you answer to your constituency. So one, are you explaining to them what you do? 
and what your role is and like how you are going to help them. I want you to treat young people like you treat your senior voters. Yes. Are you sending mailers to them to their house, right? Are you making sure that like they're getting the constituent services that they provide, right? Yeah. That's how you treat and respect folks, right? It's mm-hmm. literally, what have you done for me lately? Because you literally serve them. You're a public servant. So if yeah. you're elected official, how are you public serving your constituency? How are you addressing concerns of the people? So one, that means... Are you help holding very practical stuff like holding town halls, listening sessions? You have resources in your offices. If not, you need to find them. That's part of your job to find your people and and talk to them. So that way you're not just doing um, policy and actions without the community's backing, because that's going to come in later. Especially, I know politicians are very narcissistic <laughs> and they want to grow. They got the ego. So this, if you if you want to grow, you have to maintain your relationships. So maintaining relationships by one, being authentic, right? And also coming in, saying what you can and cannot do, particularly with young folks. I think there's... Um, not about them learning the system, right? It's more around like how, what your role is and what you can do. And quite frankly, being ready for some pushback because the system is always, well, maybe when this changes, well, why not now, right? That's what young folks are going to ask. And so if you don't have answers for that, then I mean, <laughs> then we need to find a solution to like, where are you engaging folks to come them along with, with those solutions, right? So how are you bringing yes. them into the process? Um, so that's from elected official. If you're coming from, uh, oh, let's say a party, uh, <laughs> um, or maybe a, um, a quote, uh, a civic engagement organization, it's just straight up like, how are you t- telling the stories of your people? How are you engaging them? And our particular young folks, if you're looking at a state party, are they, how are they involved in the system? Are you just having them as volunteers or do they have leadership roles? Yes. Right. How yes. Responsibility. <laughs> right. Yes. It's just like with, with volunteers, you can't just give people mindless tasks. No, you need to give them authentic responsibility where they get to see being leadership. And then then after that, um, folks need to start winning. <laughs> yes. yes, I love that because you know, I think what we did so well in the Obama campaign and we reflect about it is that we, I mean, frankly, we raised a ton of money and then we were able we invested that money into state staff and operations. And one of the most important roles at in every state was the youth vote director. Yeah. Like that youth vote director had so much writing on them because it was mm-hmm. such an important constituency for Obama and they knew it. They had done the testing. They had done the focus groups. They knew that he was speaking to young people. So they empowered the youth vote directors of every state to literally have a budget, to have their own media campaign, to have Mm -hmm. their own literature on these college campuses. Mm -hmm. And they had staff in like major college towns. They had full-time staff invested in places like Bloomington, Indiana, Um, you know, in, in North Carolina, um, you know, in Durham, et cetera, there are major operations set up with full-time staff to mobilize young people, but also to build these leadership teams. And I remember when I was in Bloomington, Indiana, mm-hmm. you know, 
the youth were calling me the general, like Bobby Knight, which is just kind of scary, but like, whatever. Because I was so adamant on and, and advocating for them at the state mm-hmm. level that like they had their own voice, they were their own leaders. And we looked to the college gems, we looked to the progressive groups, we looked mm-hmm. to the racial justice groups to come together and organize themselves. And we had, you know, presidents of students for Obama, you know, that mm-hmm. were running full-blown operations on their campus. And some of those individuals who are presidents of students for Obama are now like influential politicos who have grown into incredible leaders or are now in the civic engagement space or running these progressive organizations around the country. Mm -hmm. And so I think it takes leadership to fundraise around the youth vote and Mm -hmm. to empower them to lead their own operation and believe in them to do so. Because I think so many times we we don't have faith in what young people are capable of doing. A hundred percent. And then it's one is dismissive of young folks. We don't we don't value youth input. And quite frankly, young folks, every civil rights movement, every movement mm-hmm. in America has been led by youth, right? Yeah. From the civil rights are all the way through abortion. But youth have been critical to that. Now, when we say youth, and I want to be very particular how we've said, when you say youth, you really meant on the Obama campaign, it was college youth who were targeting, right? Right. So for 2023, 2024, we need to really move beyond college campuses and also think about like, what about all those youth in those rural communities, right, who may not see college may ever touch college, but they're going to be somewhere else doing something else, right? They're still a part of the workforce, right? They're probably stuck in the gig economy, right? Mm. Working with these warehouses. How are we talking to them and how are we engaging them? So that's like one of the biggest things when we say youth, we really mean all youth. And and this is talking about elitists, right? Like it's always been Dems like, oh, because of the structure, it's just easier to go with college campuses because they're right there. It's a quick bang for the buck because like, you know, we're trying to maximize everything on on a political campaign. But we're leaving votes on the table by not thinking about, all right, how are we engaging youth outside of campuses? I'm thinking of the city and rural areas where you're going to have youth who won't even touch a campus, but like are voting eligible, but no one's talking to them and no one's engaging them. And so votes yes. on the table uh, are being right there. So hopefully someone picks that up and that, that gets funded uh, if you really want to win in 2024. 100% and I'm snapping because <laughs> I, I you, you hit, yes, absolutely. And in a state like Indiana, mm-hmm. when I look at rural areas and you start doing the work, how, you know, reflecting on Donald Trump, reflecting on how he was able to mobilize mm-hmm. young people who are not going to college, who are taking jobs, you know, as soon as they turn, as soon as they're eligible, they're working mm-hmm. on farms, they're working in factories, you know, they're working, they're, they're making minimum wage and they're trying to survive and they are not going to college. And I think Donald Trump and folks like Joe Rogan have been able to speak to them in a mm. way that, frankly, a lot of the liberal Democratic Party, you know, cannot. spokespeople cannot. That's true. You know, and like they, they're, they're talking about that the elite are taking jobs from them, that the college educated are taking jobs from them. And they're building that anger, so much anger that they're willing to go to, on January 6th, they're willing to go to the Capitol and break windows because they're Mm -hmm. pissed about it. So like, what, right? Like, 
how do we flip that script for young people as a Democratic Party or the progressives to to reach a working class? Because I feel like that's something we talk about all the time. Like we've lost them. And I, I don't know what the answer is there. Well, it's, again, who is this working class and what are we exactly talking about when we say working class? Let's be real clear. So are we talking about young white guys, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. We're pissed off, right? Yep. All right. If you're talking about young white guys who are well, pissed no. off. no. I mean, no. But <laughs> predominantly, that's what <laughs> they assume. Yes, I know. <laughs> go on. Go on, Quasi. Go on. So if we're, so then, 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 again, we need to be uh, have fully conscious of like, all right. If it's rural communities, how are we communicating with them? If you're trying to do it digitally, all right, what in-person events are you doing to combat that, right? Do you have, like, town halls or setting up door-in-door canvases just to, like, say what you're doing, what, you know, what you're about, right, mm-hmm. with these with these folks, right, in, the, in this community? How are you entering that community? Or are you hoping a digital ad is going to do it for you? You know what I mean? Like, there, there's, like, l- levels to that. <laughs> digital yeah, ad won't yeah. cut it um, versus a, a real human contact and having real human conversations and, like, being able to, like, hear someone's perspective like why are they engaging with joe rogan like what is joe rogan saying to them that's hitting a chord that they that they're taking a run with it versus what you're saying right do you understand that why right until folks yes. get get to that why and it's different for every single community so what will work in rural indiana won't work in um, indianapolis right so like right. being respected of that and also finding there are themes Right, that will come up and acknowledge those themes and really connect into people's values mm. instead of trying to make it too damn political. Okay, well, do you believe women should have the right to control their body? That's a value, right? Mm. Connected to the values and take all the political stuff like this, bring it down to the values, and mm. then you can have some more conversations with us. And then also being mindful, like, we're not here to win everybody. Right. Right. Uh, And so if we're not here to win everybody, who can we double down on that will be a less of a hike, a hurdle to have a conversation with? Right. In terms of there are other constituencies. If you really want to win, are there other constituencies that you're just ignoring because, oh, I don't think we want to deal with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to go back to something you raised because this is critical. Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement mm-hmm. and how young people were such a critical part to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about this, Ella Baker and SNCC and all the tactics that were done. And again, yep. as an ally, mm-hmm. I remember I first became exposed to Ella Baker, which is so sad, my freshman year of college. Mm. Um and again, I went to Fordham, I was in the Bronx and I grew up on the east side of Indianapolis. And like there yeah. was a, there's a very vibrant black community. I mean, this was part of growing up, even coming back to Indianapolis after being in DC with like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, now that I'm more quote unquote woke, not really educated <laughs> and I've exposed myself to diversity. Mm-hmm. I am just floored by how strong and vibrant the black community is in Indianapolis. But mm-hmm. I had the honor to to read a book about Ella Baker. And then I took African-American history and we've talked about this a lot, just mm-hmm. how she's a damn badass. And she was the quiet warrior that was able to organize students. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what did SNCC get right in the civil rights movement 
And how can we take lessons learned, you know, me as an ally, but you as a, as a, as a black organizer, like what are the, the main tactics that you've taken away that we could learn today and and implement that in some of our campaigns? One, it was, it was youth, youth led and youth youth organized, right? And so, and they weren't waiting around Mm. for the NAACP, um, and, uh, the older folks to kind of get it together. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, um, that one of the biggest lessons from SNCC was that they just went out and did it. Um, and they organized themselves. And so they, they just, um, so that's when they took the initiative and just m- made it happen. Um, and they, um, understood, um, because they, they were also behind the whole Freedom Riders and all that stuff and the use of allies and, like, wh- where it moved. Like, they were just ready to put their bodies on the line on, on, a, on a different level. Um, and moving that frustration that SNCC folks had about being impatient, right? You need that. <laughs> you need that impatience because, like, that's what you brings, right? Like, they, they like, hey, hit you with the why not? Why not now? And, like, and they just made it happen um, with, the, with the organizing. And just they did real community building, real relationship building throughout the South. Like, yes, they, it's, the SNCC folks were, like, literally parachuting organizers from the North and other parts of the South to organize rural Black areas. Um, but, like, they did that by one respect. What SNCC did really well and doesn't that get talked about is how they entered a community. Mm. They And they also had elders there. So it wasn't just like these young folks coming and know like when um, this SNCC organizer will go into a community in Mississippi or whatever, like they would check in with like the elders, whether the pastor or the funeral director, black leadership. Um, in there to explain, like, here's what we're trying to do, and also built up leadership. So Nick was being able to have the humility to, like, built up their own leadership. It wasn't just a, like, a, I'm a saving grace, I'm a young organizer. No, it was like, this, this community here that needs to be built up, and, like, this is what we're here for. And they understood that relationship building and, and saw people as whole, full human beings and be able to organize and, and make that happen. That was, like, the beauty of what Snick did that doesn't really get lifted up. Like, no, they did some really good relationship building. They understood how to enter a community and work with a community. It wasn't just them coming in with their smart brains saying, oh, no, they got strategy. You think the white boys or black boys from whoever can come into the South and not <laughs> and get understand how to move in that area without talking to someone? Right. That was critical. <laughs> yes. I want to bring that to the, to the table because like that, that, respect your elders piece and respect history is so critical as well. Like I, I, I see a lot of youth organizers, you know, who are, are like, you know, we're so, we're so savvy. We can organize Mm -hmm. so many people online, the massives, but if you don't respect history and respect community organizers who've been in those communities for decades and you build those relationships and you say, look, I'm not trying to take over your space. I need Mm -hmm. to learn from you 
so that I get this right. Just that one little tiny conversation on humility Mm. is something I think that we need to teach young organizers because you also have to organize like older people too as a youth organizer. Yeah, you have to organize older people too as a youth organizer, but also sometimes old folks. Like there's like a generation difference, right? That like there's old folks who are shut down Mm. When they say a, a youth person come come at them and, and vice versa, right? And so, like, it's on both sides, but it's up to the organizer to kind of work through that and right and figure out, all right, how can we find a, a middle ground somewhere, mm. right? And so, I don't care the age of the organizer; it's a skill, right? Yes. And it's and they just maybe have learned that skill, um, and also how to interact interact with them. So I won't bash the, the youth organizer on that one just yet. It's in particular with the um, in the age of youth and and like where digital is like they sometimes don't need to organize the older folks like I love there's organizations who are organizing themselves so Gen Z organizing Gen Z perfect <laughs> right that's what needs right. to happen um, but uh, but at the same time there are other spaces where um, more professional organizations like like a pamphlet, some, some of those folks who were just like, all right, you have young folks in an older organization. How does that work? And like, I, I, I pray for those folks. Because <laughs> 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 it's hard. It's hard. Yes, it is. And we've, we've experienced together mm-hmm. organizations firsthand that right. have shut down because there was miscommunication and a misunderstanding yeah. between senior Generation. leadership yeah. and and young organizers. Yeah. And, you know, it's very hard to analyze, like there, it's hard to say like who's right or wrong in these situations. I think you're right. Like there has to be, um, authentic and, uh, intentional mm-hmm. work in organizations to embrace the diversity mm-hmm. across generations and age groups. And it is mm-hmm. a lot of work, um, and I don't know if anyone's getting it right yet. No. <laughs> I don't know if you have an example. <laughs> I think folks are trying. I think folks are trying. I think there's, um, it's, well, we'll see who makes it out of, you know, the cycle um, funding wise, right? Um, and then also to just, just has an organizing chops to make it happen. So like there's youth movements already, like Sunrise Movement who done um great things to bound over the, over the past couple of years around youth organizing around climate. Mm. Um, and then of course, hell, dreamers, they were, they were youth organizers too, right? Just yes. is um making it happen. Um, United with Dream in particular, um, and they're our allies of youth organizing to get their education, <laughs> right? right. Yes. Value around that. So um there are we were in Arizona together and we mm-hmm. helped run a training and, and I never say like I launched United We Dream, but like we definitely supported and organized some of the most influential dreamers to this day. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that for me, that organizing experience, mm-hmm. watching young Latinx uh, organizers and voters and, and folks with their lives on the line, yeah. you know, and border States like Arizona, um, which one of my guests I'm going to be bringing on after you is um, someone who is organizing in Arizona this cycle, nice. watching them build this infrastructure. It was it was kind of like it was life or death, and so that was just an amazing experience. Oh yeah, um, shout out to Alex Gomez from Lucha. Um, yes. 
right? B- badasses in, in Arizona. Um, Thomas Obellas, um, which I always, um, who came to, who was at that training in Arizona. <laughs> That's wild. So wild. I can't. Um, I know. We didn't even know what we were doing. We're like, wait, there's this thing going on. There's like SB <laughs> <was it> SB <laughs> 570. I'm getting the bill wrong, but uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I what I, it was it was simply um the the sheriff Arapo, Sheriff Arapo. Oh yeah. And I you know I pronounced that wrong and I apologize. Gentlemen and Brewer who are being assholes. Yeah. <laughs> that was wild. That was wild. Um, and we were like organizing. And if you were an illegal immigrant, which we were organizing a lot of them at that mm-hmm. time, if you could have been arrested if you were if you had a, a volunteer in your car who yeah. didn't have citizen status, you could have been arrested, you know, and that was like yeah. that was the level we were at. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that goes back to your point on the the civil rights movement. Um, when you find a movement, when people's lives are on the line, mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole other level. Um, and what we're seeing in the criminal justice reform movements now across the country, Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the riots slash rallies that were happening in 2020, I mean, really that that is life or death in many cases. And we mm-hmm. still see that across the country and how young people are supporting those movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess like, you know, to, to end this out, I, I just want to know, you know, if you could bet on one tactic for organizing Gen Z into the 2024 elections, what would it be? What would you invest in? Training. Love it. All day, every day. In particular, what would really help movements strive is when, we like we do a training for trainers when like those leaders of the youth movement are actually able to teach other youth movement. Like no one wants to hear my old ass talk to youth, right? It needs to be other youth leaders talking to other youth leaders, making it happen, organizing them and leading them and having them be their own leaders, right? That's the only way we grow um, in particular. So I would double down on doing organizer training, be, be real cl- clear, organizer training for youth and youth, not just college youth, I'm talking about all youth, right? Youth in rural communities and having it um, where you get those folks engaged and you get them to organize community, get them some jobs. <laughs> we boys, why not get those youth some jobs organizing community organizing? That's what I would invest in if you really want to win in 2024. Um, but hey, <laughs> love it I'm right behind you and thank you so much I really appreciate Quasi you sharing uh, your thoughts and again I look up to your experience I truly cherish your sure. viewpoints and um, you know I wish you all the best in the work and that you're doing and I'll support you in any way I can <laughs> thanks for having me on no problem thank you thank you Quasi I really appreciated that interview and perspective um now we're going to be turning to my next guest, Meg Hovius. Meg Hovius is going to bring a very interesting perspective to the Generation Z conversation. Um, she is a wonderful advocate, um, extremely thoughtful, extremely forward-thinking. I met Meg while I was a member at the Speakeasy co-working space in Indianapolis, which is an organization that fosters entrepreneurship and creates a co-working space for entrepreneurs to work together, lean on each other, um, and help build their own businesses. Um, It's a great organization. And that's where I met Meg. Um, Meg 
has some great uh, nuanced experiences in campaigns and elections. Um, she served as chief people officer on Pete Buttigieg's campaign. She is a Hoosier like myself, um, and we both are huge supporters of Pete, um, but she was, I think, the 12th person hired on Pete Buttigieg's campaign and served as chief people. Um, she will share how important um, the mental health as well as the staffing structure as well as equity became for uh, the Pete Buttigieg campaign. Um, she also was recently a senior advisor for Senator Mark Kelly's re-election campaign in Arizona. I was following her work. She's working on this campaign for two years. We all saw the results in Arizona going uh, for a bl going blue. And again, Senator Kelly, the victory. Um, the infrastructure they set up within that campaign is, is absolutely phenomenal. And Meg is going to bring forward an interesting perspective that in order for us to effectively organize and get youth out to vote, we have to build campaigns and structures that are aligned with Gen Z values, meaning this, when we are setting up staffing structures for future campaigns, we have to consider the mental health and well-being of the staffers on these campaigns. Most of these campaigns are filled with young people, young workers, and they are working around the clock, no sleep, not seeing their family, living out of their cars, getting paid hardly anything to give their lifeblood to these presidential, to these local, to these statewide campaigns. Um, and so, you know, I remember being on a campaign myself on the Barack Obama's campaign and on various issue campaigns I was in, and no one really cared um, with respect uh, about a lot of the mental or mental health of staffers. Um, we had big objectives, we had goals, we had to put our head down, we had to focus, we had to deliver. Um, but now this generation is saying, no, like only way we're going to perform and bring a victory for you is if you take care of us. And they're actually, you know, staffers are now unionizing themselves um, and, and, and demanding fairness and equity. And so in order for us to get Gen Z to come out for the 2024 elections, our staffers have to be equipped and also reflecting the values of that generation. So let's go to Meg and she'll give us a snapshot of how we can set that up. All right. So welcome, Meg Hovius. I am so excited to have you on Watts of Change podcast. Um, I've been following the work you've been doing um, in democratic politics now for about two years. Uh, we met officially, I think, two years ago, maybe, or a little mm -hmm. bit more, when you were just coming off of Pete Buttigieg's campaign, um, which was a, a, a wonderful campaign, a huge Pete supporter from the beginning. Uh, so thank you for being here today, Meg, to talk about Gen Z and youth vote and campaigning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. This is actually my first podcast ever. So longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> Great. Great. I appreciate you having me on and talking about uh, all of the happenings of the midterms. I'm happy to, to share my experience and uh, talk even more specifically about um, a group of, of individuals have become near and dear to my heart, and that's Gen Z staffers, bless their hearts, yes. <laughs> doing their work, doing the real work. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you. And, you know, I, I would love to hear first, kind of just give a little bit brief background of, you know, your work in politics, um, and specifically your work with 
people and building sort of people systems and HR systems within campaign structures. And I want to frame the conversation. Um, you know, I think we're getting all different perspectives about Gen Z and this new generation that's that are going to be voting um, the mm-hmm. 2024 elections. They prove themselves to be very influential, influential in the midterms. But as you know, we've had conversations about this is a generation that's going to be running campaigns mm-hmm. in the next four, eight years. Um, mm-hmm. And as organizers ourselves, you know, figuring out your voice and your path in the sort of election structure and the campaign structure as a staffer is, is very difficult at times. And it's a, it's, it's a learning experience. So mm-hmm. you're actually setting up systems that are conducive to young staffers as well as young voters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really important that like we don't really get to dive into the infrastructure of these campaigns and how young people are so influential in running these campaigns. I mean, when I was on the Obama campaign, it was like 23, 24, like with massive responsibility to get mm-hmm. all of these voters out, you know, for for Barack Obama in Iowa and across the country. You know, I was 25 in a management position and mm-hmm. I kind of lost and like, am I doing this right? I was never formally really trained. So just talk a little bit about your background on the last two campaigns you've been on. And how sort of your special skill set with people and setting up those systems is, you know, really important if we want to empower this new generation to become not only very educated, influential voters, but also to eventually become leaders running these these mm-hmm. campaigns. Yeah, for sure. It, it's, it is important to recognize, and I think that you can speak to this, that, uh, campaigns are a young person's game, right? It takes a certain level of energy to work on campaigns. I am now in my late thirties. I, my energy is dwindling, but I have somehow (laughs) managed to get through the past couple of cycles. Um, but we'll talk hopefully a bit and, um, a little, a little bit about the, just like cultural dynamics, what, um, you know, the nature of campaigns really look like and, and why that is such a, um, it's such a sort of perfect uh, structure for young people to work in, in a lot of ways. And it's a really imperfect structure for young people to work in, in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, if our systems and structures aren't set up for this next generation, um, you know, we could be looking at, you know, some some real impact in terms of how these elections turn out. So I am really um, committed to and excited about the opportunity to bring um, more structure and um, intentional thinking behind people systems and HR within campaigns, because it is something that has not um, always been the norm um, within these particular environments. So I've been working in, in and around electoral politics for about 10 years, eight to 10 years, um, but actually took the leap to work on my first campaign in 2019 when I joined Pete Buttigieg's um, primary run uh, for the Democratic Party. So um, I had been living in New York working for um, an organization that was sort of born out of the Obama era um, and had been working with a number of um, campaigns, nonprofits, um, and other sort of advocacy and issue related um, causes to help them run their digital marketing and digital media. Um, mm-hmm. And when 
when Pete came on to the onto the scene, if you will, he um, really inspired me because not only was he from Indiana, not only was he <laughs> a Democratic Hoosier from Indiana. Yes, uh, and you're from Indiana, of, right? You're I born from, in Indiana. Born and raised in Indiana. Um, had lived in Chicago for six years after. Um, graduating from Ball State and then moved to New York, uh, where I lived for another six and a half years. And um, so just felt really called and inspired by um, a campaign that was being run basically in my backyard, um, where I grew up and speaking to people who I grew up with um, and around. And so joining that campaign um, was a little bit twofold for me. One, it got me back here to Indiana. It got me back um, closer to my roots and my people. Um, but two, what I was really inspired by was um, Pete's commitment to building something different and new and unique um, as it relates to campaigns and and sort of this coalition that he was looking to build. And so from um, the beginning. Pete uh, and the campaign leadership um, for Pete for America were really committed to building a diverse coalition, uh, one that was representative, uh, not of where the U.S. is today in terms of um, demographics, but the future of America. So how do we really build something that um, represents the future of this country and can help um, connect and speak with people across across the nation? Um, So that was really important to me. Um, I think we did a lot of things really well. We did a lot of things that we we learned from and we'll, we'll definitely do better next time. Um, but all in all, uh, built an incredibly diverse and representative um, campaign in the presidential primary. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners know how that ended. So Pete uh, actually wrapped up um, his campaign in March of 2020, literal days before the pandemic. And so wow, I ended up, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I ended wow. up in South Bend for several months after the campaign ended um, <laughs> to eventually make my way back to Indianapolis. And um, wow. when I got back to Indianapolis in September of 2020, I got a call from a few folks that I'd worked with on Pete's campaign who had uh, since moved to Arizona to work for former astronauts and, uh, well, now current U.S. Senator Mark Kelly. Um, And at the time, you know, the question for me was like, hey, we we have six weeks left in this campaign and we really need some help just navigating um, some staff structures. Um, At the time, the, the team was going through the process of unionizing uh, which I'm happy to talk about a little bit more in depth. That's um, just about, yeah, because I love yeah. that. I love that you were involved in unionizing campaign workers. That yeah. wasn't even a conversation. I mean, it was a conversation on the Obama campaign, but the fact that we're there right now is unbelievable. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. It's just unreal. <laughs> yeah, and it is still really new. When I worked on Pete's campaign, the field staff um, had unionized, uh, which is is becoming almost like commonplace for the Democratic Party. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, as you know, organizers are on the front lines of these campaigns. They're working endless hours. They're on their feet. They're knocking doors. They're putting themselves in these these situations. Um, They do, they definitely need and warrant certain protections. And so um, I've loved to see, you know, field staff um, and organizing teams really get 
um, a lot of that through collective bargaining and through the union unionization process. Um, but on Mark's yeah. campaign, uh, we were working specifically with the HQ staff. So um, HQ staffers, um, you know, really working to collectively come together and, um, you know, organize for what they thought and what is really important to them in the workplace. And so that was everything from, um, you know, mental health support, um, low cost health care, um, you know, immigration rights was really important, especially working with a team that was based in Arizona, um, manager training. So making sure that managers who are very young most of the time and relatively new to the workplace were equipped with the interpersonal skills to um, help other young staffers navigate the space um, and do their best work. Um, so really mm -hmm. came to the table with, I thought, a lot of unique um unique asks for the team, but that ultimately led to um, what I think was culturally a, a big success um, in the 2022 cycle. Wow, that's incredible. And then, and so when we're thinking about young people taking on these roles, these sort of management roles at a very young age, you know, I just think back, I think back to my experience in the Obama campaign, how much heartache, <laughs> frustration, and probably missteps that would have been eliminated from my experience had I maybe had some better trained leaders who mm -hmm. were maybe two years older than me trying mm -hmm. to manage a lot of young energy and naive energy, you know? So the fact that you're setting that system up, you know, from your experience in Arizona and thank goodness you turned the state of Arizona blue. Mm -hmm. It was su such a success um, for the Democratic Party and, and, and many activists. But how would you say that, you know, setting up an infrastructure that was conducive for young people to work at their best played into your victory? Like, how important is it that we get the staff in the beginning and train properly as like a, a young 20-year-old? You know, how, how did that contribute to the, the outcome that we saw in Arizona? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it is incredibly important to recognize that uh, building the conditions for staffers to thrive is, it's not a nice to have, it's a must have on campaigns. And my hope is that we will start to see uh, individuals like myself and others who do this work um, more and more prevalent in these spaces, because I don't see a world in which uh, the Democratic Party continues to thrive if they're not considering how to um, really build the right type of workplaces that support their people. Um, and I think that, again, going back to what we've been talking about in regards to Gen Z in particular, um, you know, recognizing that most of the folks that are going to work on campaigns are coming straight from school, or maybe they've had an internship or two, maybe they've volunteered on campaigns. So they have a little bit of an understanding of what the expectations are. Um, that's a huge transition from, you know, working in a school structure where there's a lot of um, theorizing and you're, you're, you're really encouraged to kind of explore ideas and to explore different um, spaces and um, really kind of find your footing then to going into a campaign that is very structured. You know, the expectations are very clear oftentimes um, and just recognizing that folks probably need coaching to kind of make that transition. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, knowing that 
what Gen Z is ultimately looking for in a workplace um, is, as I mentioned, mental and emotional support. Um, Mm. They want to feel seen. They want to feel heard. They want to feel recognized within their workspaces, not just as staffers or employees, but as individuals who have whole selves coming to the space. Um, Mm. Recognizing that campaign work in and of itself is incredibly emotional. I mean, most people, uh, if not all people who work on games come to this work because they feel a particular commitment or passion to public service, to um, you know the issues that they care about. So recognizing that that's just going to be part of it. Um, and then also just recognizing that campaigns are incredibly unpredictable and uncertain. And mm. that is ultimately the thing that our brains hate most. And so the more certainty you can sort of build into the campaign itself by implementing really transparent communication channels, by setting really clear expectations, um, by, you know, creating a feedback loop where individuals aren't, um, you know, left to kind of figure it out for themselves, whether or not they're doing a good job or the FERC is making an impact. Um, just recognizing that there are moments, um, sort of these micro moments throughout the entirety of the campaign that you can start to chip away at that uncertainty to leave room for the big uncertainty, which is whether or not you're going to win the race, whether or not you're going to flip the state, whether or not, um, you know, you're going to see the outcomes that you want to see for your country, um, within this campaign. Um, so chipping away at some of that uncertainty, I think really sets people up to do their best work because they're given, you're giving them some of that mental capacity and mental space back by implementing those very tactical things. Yes, absolutely. And something you're, that you're reminding me of, one of my guests um, that was just on Quasi Chapman was talking about, you know, that we need to come forward to Gen Z. And instead of us constantly saying, we need you to do something. Mm-hmm. We also need to come to them with what are we giving to them, right? Mm-hmm. It's that building that sort of like equity piece in the beginning. But, you know, as a young person, I have a lot of choices, like why here, why now? And, you, you know, mm-hmm. we see that right now in our environment, our workplace environment, like the great resignation. Young people mm-hmm. are questioning, you know, is traditional workforce for me? So what can we, like, what can we keep in mind when working with Gen Z on sort of social campaigns or political campaigns? Like, what are some of the demands that they have and what can we bring them to be Mm -hmm. better managers and to inspire them? Yeah, that's a great question. And first and foremost, I think, ask, ask Gen Z, what do they want? Ask your Gen Z workforce, what are you looking for? in terms of a workplace? What is it that motivates you? What is it that inspires you? I think that um, I've heard I've heard this come up in other spaces as it relates back to to Gen Z and and you know any um, sort of group, but you know no solutions for us without us. So mm, <laughs> I recognize yes. that I am very squarely a millennial, and so I can speak to my work supporting Gen Z. But I think first and foremost, if you are a leader that is not Gen Z and you find that you're managing a team of Gen Z having that very um, pointed discussion and just asking rather than assuming um, what it is that they want or what motivates them, um, I think is incredibly important. But um, a couple of things that we saw value in um, on Mark's campaign 
um, working in Arizona, uh, again, first and foremost, talking about mental health, destigmatizing mental mm-hmm. health in the workplace. Um, we had implemented a uh, process in our um, overall interview workflow where um, we actually did, we conducted behavioral interviews for anyone and everyone that joined the campaign at all levels. Wow. And that behavioral wow. piece was really meant to better understand, not necessarily skills, uh, but more so the core attributes that we found to be incredibly important um, for anybody who joined the campaign. And so that's anything from, you know, empathy to tolerance for disagreements um, to, um, you know, understanding and managing unconscious bias. But I think one of the most, um, one of the most impactful attributes that we screened for and that I think really played a huge role in the overall success of the campaign was stress management and just straight up asking Mm. people, how do you manage stress in, in the workplace? Or imagine a time when you were stressed out. How did you, you know, how did you approach that? Because I do right. think that one that helps normalize, like off the bat, we recognize that this is a stressful environment and we want to make sure that you as a staffer are equipped with the skills and the mindset to be able to navigate stressful situations. Um, yes. And then two, it helped us, you know, wield out folks who may not be there yet. Maybe they struggle with stress management um, and, and, um, maybe working in a campaign environment wasn't going to be the best suited for them at that time. And so um, I think what we ultimately were able to do is recognize that that's really important for Gen Z um, and then create the conditions to help them um, to help them really manage that. Um, I love that so much. I mean, you're talking about a generation that is now demanding mental health services. Mm-hmm. It's just we're talking about it. They're talking about it. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, as I'm, an, you know, I'm active in education reform and e- education innovation, you know, trying to bring forth social emotional learning is, is such an important piece now that we're mm-hmm. talking about with, with young generations. It's still not there. We still have so much work to do. But the fact we have this generation that's entering campaign management and they're demanding mental health mm-hmm. resources and even screening them is so critical. I mean, I, I can't, I'm so many times I was so stressed out being on the campaign. I mean, you don't sleep, you don't eat, mm-hmm. you, you, if you eat, it's crap food. Most of the time, you know, I was rarely exercising and like running at the time was something I was really, really stressed about. Cause I used to love to run. I never had the time, but if this new generation is sort of like demanding that, cause that's part of their DNA, mm-hmm. it's, it's unbelievable. What were, what are some of the, and, and not to like call or put Gen Xers <laughs> or boomers on blast, but what do you see as some of the like heads ahead friction or the friction that we're seeing between the different mm-hmm. generations within the campaign structures? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, well, I think that inevitably in any workplace structure, you will continue to feel a bit of that friction between how do you prioritize the work that needs to get done and the sort of emotional support that is that is a there's also very much a tactical thing that needs to get done, right? It's not 
we we were talking earlier about how um, creating these spaces is not something that's just done, you know, by happenstance. It's something that's done by very intentional design and very intentional action. Um, but sometimes yes. it can feel like the work that needs to get done um, outweighs the space that needs to be created in order for that work to get done. So I think that friction will inevitably exist. And we experienced it a bit on the campaign too, um, especially toward the end of any cycle where ultimately everyone at that point is an organizer, right? So you're already exhausted. You're already burnt out from having worked on the campaign for a year in your HQ related role. Um, and now in this final stretch, being asked to go knock doors or being asked to go, um, you know, cure ballots or whatever else that work might be. Um, I think that will continue to be a bit of a challenge um, to, to manage for people. But again, I think that what works really well is very transparent communication. Um, you know, mm -hmm. folks want to understand what's expected of them and they want to understand how the work itself that they're doing is having an impact on the outcome of the election or the outcome of um, whatever it is that your organization is working toward. And so um, I think that there's a lot of power in internal messaging and just making sure that, uh, you know, you are recognizing where there is uncertainty or recognizing where you can offer clarity um, so that folks can feel bought in and feel and recognize that the work that they're doing is, um, is, is going to have an impact even when they're incredibly exhausted, incredibly burned out, feel like they haven't really been taking care of, of themselves or, um, of, of each other. And like, that's, you just have to keep, keep people focused on the impact and the message. Absolutely. I love this. I mean, you're bringing to the forefront of this discussion that in order to organize the vote, in order to get young people to get out and vote, we have to organize it to have actual staffers and infrastructure on the ground doing the work that are healthy, that are motivated, that feel like they're included. And if we can get that right, then we can really organize better and get better turnouts for young people. Mm -hmm. um, because if our staffers aren't working to their best, then you aren't going to be able to continue pounding the pavement to get young people to vote. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember like I was a youth vote organizer and the young people were like looking to me to give them answers. And, you know, if I didn't have that transparent line to senior leadership or I didn't feel like leadership was supportive, I definitely shut down. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're only as strong as your staff when it comes mm -hmm. to mobilizing youth voters and putting real people power behind it. Um, I was talking to one of my guests about, you know, what I loved about the Obama campaign. And I think Pete may have been similar. It's like, you know, we had the youth vote position on the Obama campaign it was like a coveted position. Mm -hmm. And the campaign put so much stake into that. And as a youth vote director, you had a budget, you had, you know, this creative team behind you, um, you know, putting up billboards or, you know, going around college towns or rural areas where you were just solely focused on the youth vote. Mm -hmm. um, in Pete's campaign and Mark Kelly's campaign, did you see like, actual physical staffers that were dedicated to youth vote? 
Yes. Yep. Um, on both. I mean, there were, uh, there was a whole team of youth coalition builders on Pete's campaign, um, which obviously is a little bit different than what it would it look like on Mark's campaign, just being a presidential versus a Senate race. But, um, you know, similarly on Mark's campaign, um, we had a, a whole team of organizers that were focused specifically on campus organizing and youth organizing. And they were some of the earlier, they were some of the earliest hires that we made um, on the organizing team um, because wow. I think it was recognized how important that vote is. And especially in Arizona, where you do have a lot of universities that are based there. Um, and so getting young people on the ground to mobilize young people early on was really important. So, um, yeah, they, a lot of the campus organizers were with us almost from the beginning. So I love that. Cause I think, you know, if you know, people are thinking about, you know, how do we set up structures like, and even like donors who are interested and in, they want to invest in the youth space, they see it as critical, you know, investing in staff, I for I don't know what your opinion is on this, but you know, versus like tons of money on ads, which critical or critical, right? Social media, all of it is a critical, but like investing in staff to do mm -hmm. the groundwork healthily and like, you know, with a change hope sort of mentality is where I'm coming from. But like mm -hmm. having this vision of something greater than themselves, I don't I think maybe the best investment you can make to get the youth vote out is mm -hmm. the people who are on the ground organizing them. And so, you know, as we're, we're short on time, we're getting shorter on time, like what would be your advice to someone who's getting ready to run for office and is going to set up a campaign? How do they win over the Gen Z vote? And how do they bring in strong Gen Z staffers? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, to your point, I think the first thing that comes to mind is like meet, meeting, meeting Gen Z where they are. And they're not on TV. They're not watching ads on TV. And so mm -hmm. recognizing that the way in which um, Gen Z are um, reached and mobilized is going to look a lot different than generations past. Um, and so, yeah, just meeting them where they are, wherever that might be. And we've talked about this, like what um, a lot of the strategies that we put in place in 2022 are inevitably going to look a lot different than um, when Mark runs again, hopefully in 2028. So um, I can't think a about that change in six years. Um, yes. But just doing that work to understand um, how are how is this this um, demographic mobilized? How are they reached? How are they uh, motivated to take action? Um, and know that it could look a lot different than, than some of the programs that you've run in the past. Um, and in terms of hiring and bringing on Gen Z staff, um, I think that, um, again, prioritizing mental health, recognizing burnout, talking very openly about that, um, giving folks the space to bring their whole selves to work and to um, both commit to the campaign, but also commit to themselves and to developing and building a healthy lifestyle and a health, healthy work-life balance. Um, and then something that I just don't think is going to go away and um, something that I think will be really interesting to continue to navigate now that we are 
not necessarily post-pandemic, but in a different era of the pandemic. And that's flexible work schedules and flexible Mm. working. Um, And so recognizing that flexibility is incredibly important to Gen Z, um, if not like mandatory for them in a workspace um, and how you can really build that flexibility in from day one um, without necessarily having to be fully motivated to do so by a global pandemic, which is what a lot of organizations had to do in 2020. Um, But thinking about how that can be sort of part of your operations day one um, to really accommodate for this, uh, this generation. Well, Meg, I love that. That's such a great note to end on. I mean, flexibility is key. And, you know, we, we haven't even hit the subject of technology, which we kind of can't imagine what technologies are going to be in existence in 2028 mm-hmm. um, when these when we see folks running again. But, you know, thank you for everything you are doing and have done to build stronger people systems um, for the new campaigns that are 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 running, you know, Pete, Mark Kelly, and I'm sure you're going to be doing lots more in the future and we'll be watching you. Uh, But thank you for taking the time today and super lucky you're in my network. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all the work that you're doing um, and keep it up. I love your podcast. So this was such an honor. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. We are. We're going to keep going. (laughs) We got this. Thank (laughs) you. Now we're going to hear from Nick Roberts. Nick, is a member of Generation Z. He's a 22-year-old candidate for Indianapolis City County Council District 4, which represents Castleton and Geist. After seven years of community and political involvement, he is running for council to advocate for investing in mental health programs, better infrastructure, and stronger public safety. Um, it's, It's just an absolute honor to be able to connect with Nick I got to meet Nick while I was working on redistricting reform and stop gerrymandering efforts here in Indiana. And let's hear what he has to say. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lots of Change podcast. Well, I am so excited about our next guest, Nick Roberts. Um, Nick is a member of Gen Z, and he is running for political office here in Indiana. So Nick, welcome to the Lots of Change podcast. Thank you for being on. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, obviously, you and I have gone back, you know, for about a couple of years now, just in terms of the work we've done. And, you know, I, I have been really, I mean, on the forefront, of a lot of these different movements, you know, the gun violence movement, the, you know, the redistricting movement, a lot of these different things. And, you know, I think Gen, Gen Z needs to step up and, you know, not necessarily run for office, but just get involved, you know, join the fight. And, you know, I, I view this as the perfect time for me to get involved in this way. And, I'm really, really excited for it. It's going great so far. That is wonderful. And I know you have been extremely active in the community. We met during the, you know, gerrymandering, redistricting fight, the state fight, um, also the the city council fight here in Indiana. Um, and I know that you were developing some of the most critical maps that we frankly couldn't find anywhere. Um, so you as a student, as a college student, from my understanding, took it upon yourself to create some of the maps that we used to organize around for fair maps here in Indiana. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And honestly, you know, people ask, you know, was it a class you took that you got interested? I'm like, I've always just loved maps. You know, for me, geography has been a big interest. You know, I remember my great grandpa who's passed away now sitting in his lap, just looking through atlases back in when I was a kid. And I've always had a fascination for it. So for me, you know, using the maps in order to to get political fairness to me is a, a really natural way of going about it. And, you know, there was nobody else really doing it. You know, I was surprised 
that I was again the first person to put up all these, uh, you know, the maps because I, I had the software, I guess, to do it. But I assumed other people would have too. But you know, ultimately, I, I think it's a it's it's a lesson to be learned for everybody. That you always assume that somebody's going to step up and like be the one to fight for your cause. But on some level, you just have to do it yourself. You know, if you don't see anybody doing it the way you can, and obviously, Jen, I think you're a good example of that because you've made a podcast, you've been an activist for a while. You know. You can't always have somebody else be what you want to be. You just have to do it yourself sometimes. And, you know, that's been a, a big lesson for me over the last couple of years of, you know, another part of running for office too is, you know, I, I know I can run a good campaign. I've lived in the area my whole life. I can connect to the community and um, why wait for somebody else to do it when I can, you know, I think I can do a really good job out of myself. Well, I mean, that's the exact attitude I love to hear and why I just am such a huge fan of Generation Z. I mean, I've always been a youth organizer and a youth advocate, but, you know, just watching sort of this new generation rising up the ranks and sort of the the, the issues that they care about, the issues that Gen Z is demanding to see on the political agenda, especially for 2024 presidential, but even in the midterms, I think is just spot on. Um, and so my question for you is, you know, as you're getting ready to gear up for your campaign, well, first of all, what office are you running for and where? Yeah, so it's Indianapolis City County Council. I'm running in District 4, which is around Castleton and Geist, which is in the northeast corner of the county. Um, I've lived here my whole life. I went to Lawrence North, which is right in the area. Um, you know, I, 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 I really, and the current incumbent is retiring and supporting me. Um, I have the support of a lot of other people too. Um, and really it's just going great so far. Uh, my top priorities I would say are infrastructure, uh, mental health and public safety. You know, I think those are three issues that are, are so just impactful in different ways in our city. Um, there's others that I care about and a lot of, on a deep level too, obviously gun violence prevention is important. Uh, you know, democracy is that we control the funding of the clerk's office and the election board. So for me, having a really functioning, um, you know, high achieving um, clerk's office where we're really promoting democracy is important to me. Um, and then more importantly, on top of that, just having active and engaged elected officials. You know, I currently serve as the director of community relations for the trustee's office right here, Lawrence Township. Um, and I've gotten to go to a lot of these different neighborhood meetings and everything. And whether people are Democrats or Republicans, consistently the consensus is people just want, you know, elected officials that are listening to them, that are engaged, that are going to their meetings, that are hearing about the concerns. And I will always do that. I've been doing that my whole life. And, you know, I'm just really fortunate to have a, you know, running for an office that I think is localized enough that my skill set can really translate to it well. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I like there's all this research out there and the big, you know, think tanks and, and academics. We're all trying to understand Gen Z and the issues you care most about. Um, and I love that you brought up mental health um, and infrastructure. I feel like these two issues are ones that are like they're, they're critical to your generation. And it seems like they were just kind of like wedge issues and like, you know, yeah. sort of like sideline issues for my generation, the millennials and the generation above us, like, why do you think your generation is so in tune with mental health, particularly, but also just the infrastructure piece as well? Yeah. And the mental health one is unique. I mean, obviously it's not like it's just an issue that just popped up over the last couple of years, but I think the pandemic has really, you know, put it in the forefront of people, but also, you know, I'm a big hypocrite for this. I use social media as much as anybody, but I think just, I, mean, I was on Facebook when I was seven years old. Literally. Wow. I was on Instagram when I was like, well, I was on Twitter when I was nine. Like I've been 
hyper online. So I was, I mean, seriously, like in first and second grade. Um, and I think, say what you will, but I don't think uh, the consensus is that mental health is uh, impacted well by your social media usage. And I think the fact that our generation has been on it so much as a kid, has been, since we we're kids, has been just uh, a big impact on that. But on a personal level, and this is why I really care about it a lot, my family was affected a lot by it on a few different levels. Um, so long story short, um, my grandmother actually committed suicide when I was a young uh, kid. Um, and it was really hard for me. Um, she was pretty much my primary caregiver. Um, and, you know, it, it was something I never really had thought about before. Um, but, you know, I've reflected on it over the last few years and I've realized that, you know, really it's just such a pivotal issue on so many people's lives. And there's so many families too that have similar stories to that. And not just that too, that's my mom's side. On my dad's side, my dad is a disabled army veteran. He's a hundred percent, you know, he's blown up in the military. Um, and he deals with, you know, all the different things you can think of. Right. And, you know, so many families, almost everybody has somebody that they know that's dealt with these things. And obviously the council can't change all of it overnight. But whatever we can do to make an impact on it in a positive way, I will always be an advocate for. Um, and just, you know, I think my generation, especially because of the pandemic, I think it's opened up a lot of conversations about it. And that's partially of my goal. Obviously, there's public policy points that I will always emphasize and make sure to bring up. But I think half the battle of mental health is just talking about it, being open about it and being a voice for it. And that's what I'll always do. I absolutely love that. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I mean, when you said I've been on Facebook since I was seven, uh, I, I just visualized that. I was like, I, I can't even understand that, honestly, because Facebook launched when I was in college. Um, and so what you've experienced, you know, through some of your most formative years, middle school, you know, all of it, you were on social media, you saw like real life bullying, I'm sure, yeah. in real time growing up online and what that looks like. Um, so I, I love that you're you're such an advocate there, and it is it is right. I think you know young people are just exposed to social media and the pressures of that in a different way than than we can imagine. But then thank you for sharing your personal story, and I think just shows your maturity, frankly, and your leadership ability to talk about it so openly and recognize that a lot of people are struggling with this, and that you are also, and I am too, a generation where you know, our family dynamics are not the traditional sort of, you know, hetero marriages that, yeah. you know, I'm going to, you know, are supposed like our religion tells us to be or cultural tells us to be, you know, I'm a single mom myself. And, you know, I was actually raised by my father. So when you have a different primary caretaker, that's influential in your life. Um, I think it also probably opens your eyes just to more diversity and understanding, that, you know, going through that trauma, going through that pain and that being part of your platform, I think is going to reach a lot of people. Uh, so thank you for being so honest about that. Um, and, you know, the, you know, one thing I've been thinking is like, why did you decide to run now and so young? Um, and, you know, you're of course going to get criticized. Like, do you have enough experience to take on leadership level, um, to take on this role? What is your response to people who may be thinking that? And why do you think this is the time for you to run um, as, as Gen Z? Yeah, sure. And I think first and foremost, you know, the government is meant to be a representative of all different people, right? religion, race, gender. Um, and one that gets left out of that often is age. You know, we, we, we often, you know, we, we just normalize how many of our elected officials are, um, you know, not young. And, and that's great that they're involved. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
Um, the issues that affect young people are often specific to my generation and also give me a unique experience too. You know, I have survived, uh, my whole life, you know, like any other kid my age, uh, under the fear of gun violence, you know, having school shooter drills, I survived through a, you know, zoom pandemic. And I've learned about the experience of that too. I've learned about, you know, the effects that it has in terms of people falling out of the system and then falling into crime, whatever. Right. You know, and as a young person too, I just think it is important for young people to see other young people in government. Cause when we think about how, how, uh, youth, youth turnout in elections is not high enough. We think about just the fact that young people are not involved enough in government, you know, there is an extreme importance, I think, to have young people um, to have a voice in the government like we are voting in as well. Um, so I, I just think it's very important. We have unique experiences, too. But also, you know, just in general, I have also a lot of experience in myself. As I mentioned, I'm the director of community relations for the township. Um, I'm the president of Lawrence Township Democratic Club. I've worked on a lot of different things. I've held a lot of positions. And, you know, for me, having those backgrounds is something I don't want to minimize, too, because I don't want people to think, that it's a choice between young and inexperienced versus old and experienced. Cause you know, young can be experienced too. Um, and you know, I, I'm really fortunate for my experiences, not just that too. I've lived in the area 22 years, you know, I think that's a good experience in and of itself. Having gone to the schools in the area, having gone to the community events in the area, having, you know, just done all those things. My family's owned multiple small businesses in the area too. I think those experiences are really worthwhile and those are mine, but other people too, I just think, you know, it's important to have diversity in our government. And I think uh, age is an important component of that as well. Absolutely. And I mean, look, like I worked for Barack Obama and I mean, everyone was saying that he was inexperienced and he was too young. And then Pete Buttigieg comes comes yeah. on the scene and we both as Hoosiers, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're a Pete fan, well, I, I assume. I book, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice, yeah, nice. And everyone was like, Pete's too young. He's too inexperienced. You know, he and I was team Pete all the way because I think it is time for the new generation of leaders to be given opportunities to run our government, to take back issues that matter, to get this old sort of, I hate to say it, fading mentality um, out of our state house, frankly, out of our city councils. And so it takes folks like you to get up and say, nope, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start breaking these, these barriers. Um, and so you know, I think like, as you continue, you don't give up because so many people before you did it, but so many people are waiting to run and you are setting the stage for like young leaders to do it. Um, so like, how are you handling the pressure of running for office so far? And, you know, what do you, what do you say to, to folks who are going, who you already mentioned, like who are inexperienced, but like what, what keeps you sort of sane while you're doing this? Yeah. And a few things. Thank you for the kind words. Um, and one thing I just thought of too, and this is something that people brought up to me in the past, you know, not to compare myself to the founding fathers. I hope whenever the Republicans don't take this out of context and act like I am, but you know, the founding fathers, a lot of them were literally teenagers or in their early twenties when they founded our country, you know, and you know, yeah, not that there's anybody that I would compare to them at all, but you know, I think we like to, um, romanticize these things in the past as always having been by, you know, the elders, the eldest statesmen, but that was not how things had happened in our history. And I think, you know, it's worthwhile just to get, again, all perspectives on these things. Uh, but secondly, you know, I really had been so blown away in a positive direction that 99% of the response I get 
whether I'm talking to Democrats, Republicans, Independents, has been positive about my age. You know, and obviously I think that'll be a little bit nicer in my face, but still, you know, I, I've really had very few people com- compared to what I was expecting. You know, my kickoff got 600,000 views and I had maybe 10 people maybe make a negative comment about my age, but I had, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds give really positive, sincere remarks. So, I mean, I've been really blown away by the positivity. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm not the single torchbearer too. There's a lot of other, you know, really good people that have, you know, uh, I'm actually in a group chat with a lot of Gen Z candidates across the country, many of whom won. And, you know, they've just been so helpful to me. I talked to a lot of them on the phone about just different advice. Um, and, you know, uh, I can name a lot of them. Um, but I, I, I am not obviously the only, uh, uh, you know, uh, again, torchbearer on this. There's a lot of other people doing good work too. And, you know, I, I consider myself to be one of them. So I don't necessarily think there's pressure on me myself. You know, I'm the only one from Indiana, really. There's a couple others that are young too, but I don't know if they're as young as me. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I don't necessarily view there's being a ton of pressure. I just take it day by day. And, you know, I've been just, again, appreciative by the overall positive response. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. I love that the year is already, there's a community of Gen Zers running for office and you guys are talking to each other and supporting each other just at your fingertips on a group chat. And what I, what I think, you know, for some people that's, that's, that's a, you know, the fact that that's just part of your DNA, like you're able to connect to young people across the country, across the world and build an online community of support um, is, is incredible. And I think it's going to take that to keep motivating each other to keep going. Um, cause like for you, what do you think is your biggest barrier to this election? Like, what do you think is going to be something you're going to have to overcome and prove yourself beyond your age? Yeah. And I, I think that's a tough question. Um, and honestly, just to be blunt, I think a lot, the, the number one consensus I hear from people that are again, cause in that group chat, there's people elected their state legislatures, you know, Maxwell Frost, who's elected to Congress from Florida, you know, it's a lot of people that are running at a very high level. Um, and the number one problem they run into is the fact that a lot of them have not really, not, and this doesn't apply to anyone specifically, just broad, broad, uh, you know, broad strokes here. Um, what I hear is that a lot of them, uh, couldn't, they didn't have as many political connections as other candidates did. They couldn't raise enough money. Um, they, had trouble in kind of the traditional campaign sense. It really was not even a, a matter of voters being skeptical, because especially Democratic primary voters, Democratic primary voters love young candidates. They really do. Um, but I think the bigger issue is the more traditional campaign barriers that make it challenging to run a campaign. And really, for me, I mean, you know, I've been so fortunate that I've been involved for six, seven years. You know, I mean, I was the vice president of my township Democrats when I was 16. You know, like I've been. Yeah, I mean, I, this I'm coming up to seven years of being hyper involved. Seven years from my first internship in politics, you know, I've run multiple campaigns, I've knocked so many doors, you know. So for me, I have a lot of a built up network, um, and you know, not just that, but a community network too. And you know, raising money, I think, is the number one kind of tangible, um, uh, kind of a, objective way of analyzing campaigns. And that's what I always heard is, you know, talking to young candidates is, hey. You know, it's going to be easy to say you're running for office, but you have to kind of put your money where your mouth is. You have to be able to raise enough money to really prove yourself as a serious candidate. And I've been so fortunate. I'm almost at 500 donors so far. Like, I've just been so blown away with the support. Um, So, you know, I think a lot of the traditional barriers I've been able to kind of alleviate because of my 
previous experience kind of prove myself to people. Um, but you know, I'm not sure my biggest barriers right now, but I think again, I, I've been intentionally working towards breaking down the barriers that I know are a lot of other young candidates are subject to. And that's been really a lot of my, where my work is going to right now is I'm trying to overcome those stereotypes too. Um, I think my biggest barriers in general though, will be talking because right now a lot of the people I talk to are people I already know and I can prove myself to, but I think the challenge is next year when I'm knocking people's doors for the first time, shaking their hand, meeting them is being able to concisely tell them why, you know, I'm the case at a young age, you know, because a lot of other people know me and they can't always, or they, they can vouch for me, but other people might not know me as well. So I'll have to make that case to them. Right, right. No, you know, I was blown away when I saw you announce your campaign. And I think you posted like all of your endorsements. Yeah. And I, how many endorses out of the pen did you have? You had like almost every Democratic Party representative. How many endorsements were out of the pen? I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, I, I mean, I had hundreds of people. I, I had to narrow that list down, and I have a lot longer of a list now, too. Um, and, and that's the thing is, I mean, I was prepared to have a lot of people be like, you know, Nick, you're a nice guy, but sorry, I can't support you. Um, so, I mean, I was, and that's why I met with you. Like, I was so genuinely blown away that all the work I've been putting in for years and years and years had paid off in a way that I was so appreciative for. Um, and in, in a way that, you know, I think was a recognition of the hard work I put in. Because again, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to minimize anybody else here, but, you know, I think people are naturally skeptical to young candidates because, you know, just, I mean, all the things we've mentioned before, right? They don't think they can raise money. They don't have as experience, whatever. But I think having all the support I have is such a reflection of, you know, the work I've put in over the last six years. Um, and, you know, I think it's only going to continue from here. And it's been intentional that way, you know, for, for the minute I thought I was going to run for this, I've been trying to do everything I can to craft, uh, you know, a, a genuine perception of me as being mature, being um, hardworking, being, you know, analytical, all the things that I think people really prioritize as, you know, our public servants. And, you know, for me, that's just how I am, but I, it's important for me to project that as well. Absolutely. And I think that you just like what you did that was so impressive to me. And when I first met you, I think at like a community meeting, you were authentic and, you know, you showed up to the far east side of Indianapolis and you walked in and you were engaging people and you weren't afraid and you were being yourself and you were, you know, just just speaking truth to power and then bringing the data forward. And I watched you do that in a lot of community meetings when we were working together and you had just a, a authentic, honest, humble attitude. And for me, that was huge. I was like, okay, this kid's legitimate. Like he is, he's showing up, he's hustling. He is meeting people. He's talking to people of all ages. And, you know, I think that that's, that's really a gift because it's, it is hard to get up there no matter what your age is. And people are going to check you as soon as you walk in the door, especially being like a young white guy, right? Let's call a spade a spade. And are, are people going to trust you? And so I think what you have done, which I've witnessed, is that you show up and you're authentic, but you keep showing up. And you don't just disappear, get something out of the group and leave. You really, truly show up. And the fact that you're young and the fact that you have the time to do it is so is such a gift. Because as you get, you know, if, if you ever get married or you have kids, whatever your path is in life, just going to keep getting more and more responsibility. So the fact that you're taking advantage of this time right now, you don't have much time because you're involved in everything, but like you're taking that energy and you're putting it into the community. And it's so great because I'm sure so many people wish they would have done what you're doing right now. 
Yeah. And thank you for that. And that's one point that I make to everybody. You know, I get so many um, people asking like, where, you know, what internship should I apply for? You know, what should I my next step be from young people, obviously. And you know, the number one thing I tell them is it's great to get involved for the first time, but you have to stay involved. You know, this isn't necessarily for people that have, are just applying, but people that have finished internship too. I'm like, you know, as much as it's frustrating to be an Indiana Democrat, it's frustrating to walk into a room of political event and be the youngest person there. It's frustrating to not know anybody, but you, there's always going to be those kind of awkward barriers sometimes, but you have to stay with it if you're passionate about it. You know, having one cycle, I mean, I, I can think of so many people that have worked one cycle of an internship for a campaign or, you know, a, you know, governmental internship, whatever. They decide it's not for them and they give up, but they had the passion to start with. But the barriers that are in place are there for a reason. I hate to say it, but the system is not meant to have young people stay involved because it's difficult, you know? It's a, it's a sacrifice in a lot of things. It's a sacrifice on your time. It's a sacrifice on your morale sometimes. And it's a sacrifice on a lot of things. But if you have the passion for it, you just have to stay involved. And that's why I tell people all the time is, you know, you know you'll, you'll go to community meetings sometimes and it's not all roses and unicorns. You know, you're not going to be able to make the difference from day one and all any of these things, right? But it's about the sustained um, activism. And, you know, it's not just a, you're not just doing this on the election year. You're doing it for a four-year cycle. 10-year cycle, you know, going to all these different things, going to community events, going to knocking on doors, you know, raising money, you know, whatever the event is, right? Just going to everything and anything. And from that too, I think you kind of learn about what your interest is and kind of developing a, a niche of, you know, where your skill set lies. Like mine, I would say is in data. I love data. I love making maps and everything. I love analyzing all of it. And I don't know if I would have discovered that in a political way if I didn't go to these things and learn that, you know, there's kind of a uh, a gap in terms of the party. There's not really anybody that um, has, you know, the same kind of uh, data background that I have in terms of mapping things, right? So, you know, going to these things and learning about everybody else, learning about where people's skill sets lie, I think is a great way of analyzing yourself and, you know, staying involved. Again, that's why I keep on coming back, just staying involved, staying engaged and just, you know, keeping at it. I love it. Absolutely. And I think it's great that you have this data experience and this like analytical side to you. Um, I think it's super critical for leadership. Running data-driven campaigns is so important. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, for me, I'm always trying to get my head around like, what is the biggest differentiator for Gen Z? Like I'm involved in some projects right now at the universities trying to like better understand youth entrepreneurs and like, how do we build better technologies for students? You know, what for you, what are some of the qualities that stand out for Gen Z that make you all different, but give hope to us? Like what are the pieces that are hopeful and different about this generation? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's, you know, big picture, tough paint of, uh, broad uh, stripe on an entire generation. But, um, you know, I think in terms of experiences we've all lived, you know, I think, uh, you know, we've all lived the pandemic, which has been a huge, I think, psyche change for the generation, um, have to live with the long-term effects of the environment and climate change. That's a huge issue for our generation. We've dealt, as I mentioned before, with tech from day one. So we're a lot more adept with kind of tech and understanding that and, you know, public policy with that too, right? Um, and, um, I think the black lives matter movement was huge, huge, huge for our generation. I mean, even the Republicans I knew were, you know, posting the black squares and I know the black square was not 
you know, really any actual substance. But, you know, I think it, it, it symbolized kind of how the generation was unified behind this. So, you know, when I mentioned all those issues, you know, I think those are pretty uh, favorable issues to more liberal and progressive causes. Um, and I think a lot of people see those issues and recognize the impact voting has with those issues. But, you know, they might know when the presidential election is, but I was blown away this year how few of the people I knew who were passionate and active didn't even know there was a midterm, you know, little in the municipal election next year, little in the primaries. So I think a lot of it has to be intentional. It has to be reaching out to people, you know, not just being passive about it, reaching out to people directly, you know, asking them when, where, how they'll be voting. Um, and, you know, just being just um, hardworking. And I think that resonates well with people too. But I, I also think uh, our generation is more, I would say, not necessarily ideological, but issues-based, um, more focused on tangible results on, you know, again, climate, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, gun violence. I, I forgot to mention gun violence. That's, I, I've mentioned it a few times during this conversation, but I didn't mention it at that point too. You know, our generation from day one has been doing school shooting drills, has been fearful of always gun, you know, gun violence. Every single person in Indiana has in every state in the country has had at least one school shooting during somebody's life in their state or in their community. You know, like when I was in high school, Noblesville, the shooting happened in Noblesville. Wow. Um, wow. Were you, you know, there, there when the school shooting happened? Were you on? No, no, no. no I was on Noblesville. I'm just saying that oh, okay. that happened. You know, I think it's just for everybody, right? You know, yeah. every kid has gone through the experience of opening their phone and seeing, you know, school shooting happens right. two miles from you, you know? Right. And you right. know, there's a school shooting at my, at a football game we had at one of our, like, it's just, you know, everybody has these experiences. And I think it's, it shapes you in terms of just how you view these issues. And, um, you know, I mentioned a lot of them, but I think, you know, all the issues that I, that I mentioned are not necessarily abstract issues that are happening after people's lives. These are issues that are going to be affecting us a lot in our lives and already are. And that's where I think a lot of the urgency comes from. 100%. I love that, Nick. And, and, you know, you bring up so many great points, you know, that things that I didn't even think about. And I think, you know, for me, I remember, you know, being super young and very frustrated with the political system. And I know Gen Z is a bit of the same, like it's like optimistic, but also jaded and, you know, very much like, what is this politician going to do for me? But I think what started changing my attitude was truly watching some of my peers start to run for office. And I thought to myself, if he can run for office and he's creating change, then I can do that someday too, you know, and gave me hope that there were representatives in office that were my age caring about my issues, you know, again, why I supported Pete. And I think that, you know, will go such a long way that you don't even realize that someone's going to see you who's your age and really, you know what, maybe I will vote for him or maybe I will get involved because I see people my age running now. So it's so critical that you continue doing it and, and bringing people along with you, frankly, is going to be even more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important thing for me too, is paying things forward. You know, I mean, I, I really, I, I feel like I have a romanticized view on it often, but so many of the elected officials in our area been such good mentors to me and have been so great to me, you know, even just the really small things, right? Like paying for my lunch, if I get lunch with them, you know, letting me come to events for free. A lot of it's financial because I don't have, a, I mean, I'm better off now than I was four years ago, but I don't have money to be spending on all these different things, right? But being in the room and having those experiences is important. So even though I'm not, you know, I'm no Bill Gates, but if I'm at, uh, you know, getting lunch with a high schooler, 
I always pay for it. You know, I always at all my events, I always have on my, my event, you know, regardless of how high price the fundraiser is, students can always come for free. That's an important thing for me. You know, I always do events at places that people under 21 can go because I've been at things where, you know, it's at bars and I'm not able to go because I'm not 21. Right. Um, and I, I, that's a frustrating experience, you know, and not just that, too, but, you know, for, uh, you know, parents, right. They can't bring their kids, you know, the childcare is expensive. They can't always bring their kids if, um, you know, it's a 21 plus event. So I, I try to be intentional with how I do things. And those are, you know, and that's where I think having young candidates is important because for most candidates, those things will probably never even cross their mind of having events at 21 over places, you know, uh, letting, you know, messaging their high schoolers they know to come for free. But for me, those are important because I've been there before and I've lived those experiences and I, you know, can really appreciate the hard work that people have because it's not always appreciated by people. Absolutely. I absolutely love that. And frankly, I mean, we can learn a lot from you. I mean, and, and you know, it reminds me, even, even on the Obama campaign, in Iowa, I worked in Iowa as an organizer, we were organizing high school students and they were called the Barack stars because we knew if we could get like a few high school students to caucus for us, that would be huge. And we could swing people just by focusing on high schoolers. And it's like, it's little things, like you said, like thinking about, you know, alcohol-free events, like, you know, 21 and under, you know, how do we create spaces where young people feel safe and we're speaking their language is so critical. Um, and, you know, and I think that, you know, one of my last guests uh, was bringing up, like, it's all about, you know, being authentic from the get-go because young people, any, any constituent is going to know if you are authentic. And the fact that you're already starting to talk to young voters now this early in your campaign is going to send a, a, a huge signal. So thank you for doing that and being intentional about that. Um, so, you know, to leave it on, you know, I know we're running short on time, but if there is just a few things that you want voters to remember about you launching this campaign as a Gen Zer, um, what do you want them to remember about you and why do you want them to vote for you um, on election day? Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I just think the, the big perspective I'll give is, you know, I, I'm just an extremely hard worker and I, I, you know, I've been fortunate for that. And I think having people in there that have just the dedication for the job. You know, I think a, a good reflection of how hardworking a candidate or an elected official is going to be is how hard they campaign. And I'll be campaigning like nobody's business, going to all the community meetings, you know, knocking at every door, asking everybody for money. Um, and just, you know, that's how you have to win these things, right? And I think the issues that I mentioned before, of infrastructure, I didn't even mention the infrastructure thing, but, you know, infrastructure, mental health, public safety, all those are, I think, bipartisan um, priorities too. You know, those are not just one side of the aisle or the other. And I think that's the beauty of local politics is local politics is by nature bipartisan, you know, you know, the, the person of the other party that you might uh, not, you know, agree with on national things might live down the street from you. You can agree on a lot of these localized issues. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's the important thing to take away from it is we can really work together very well. And I've been fortunate to have seen a lot of it firsthand by going to a lot of the council meetings and seeing how much there is an opportunity really to work together on a lot of these priorities, you know, um, public safety, infrastructure, mental health, these are not partisan issues at all. Um, and I will always work with anybody to get these things done. And I've been really fortunate to have spent so much support so far. Um, if you want to follow me, my Twitter is Nick Roberts, three, one, seven, 
Um, I, I'm on TikTok now too, Nick Roberts for Indie. Um, I, I might even probably find me. Just look up Nick Roberts, you'll find me. But I just want to say once again, thanks for listening. Um, you know, if you are Gen Z, I hope you really get involved. If you're not Gen Z, I hope you support Gen Z candidates. Um, just support people in general too. You know, like we're not the only ones running, and you know, we're, we're really fortunate to have a lot of people that are really in politics for the right reasons. And you know, I, I um, got to know a lot of them on a local on a local level very well. And I mean, really, so many public servants I know are some of the best, just you know, kindest, you know, hardest working people I know. And I, I would really love to be. Um, have, take what I've learned from them and use that as well for myself. I love it. Well, Nick Roberts, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. I appreciate your time. Thank you for running. Um, you're truly an inspiration to me. And um, I'm just very excited to see what you're going to do as a leader, what your generation is going to do for politics and just keep going. And you 100% have my support. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks once again for having me on. I really do appreciate the platform. Absolutely. Well, there you go. We've heard some great ideas on how to mobilize Generation Z going into the presidential 2024 election. Um, I'm super thankful for Quasi, Meg, and Nick sharing their ideas um, for this episode. Um, and really, I just want to end this episode out with hopefully challenging um, any of my Generation Z listeners. Um, but, you know, as, as an advocate and as an ally to this generation, um, I don't want you to ever give up. I know sometimes it's extremely frustrating and it's extremely hard to believe um, in democracy, to have faith that our leaders are going to keep your interests um, at the core of their decisions and their votes. Uh, but the only way that we can change that, the only way we can provide platforms that are going to assist you, that are going to help you, um, is if we keep the pressure on these politicians. And if we keep the pressure on them, that means we have to get out to vote. It is so critical that you continue to vote, that you continue to raise your voice, that you continue to wield your power. Um, and it's the only way to build a platform that is going to be conducive to your needs and to what future generations are going to need for years to come. So thank you so much for listening. Um, it's been a great episode. It's been a great uh, project to work on. And I'm excited to, to bring forward many more efforts to help our young voters remain strong and heard going into the presidential for 2024. Thank you. Thank you.